Hello and welcome to The Haunted. I'm Freddie Young. And I'm Vanessa Mitchell. And we are joined today by our historian, the Sergeant Major. Say hello. Hello, everybody. Um, so today we are going to be covering the weird and wonderful world that are London Underground. I wouldn't say and... it's one... I don't know about the wonderful bit. Well, after I... our episode today, we're going to talk about. But... I would just like to say before we start this episode, a little bit of a trigger warning. The nature of the underground and the some of the tragic events that have happened have happened and continue to happen there may be um, triggering to, to some people. Um, so please be aware that we do discuss suicide. We do discuss disasters. We do discuss terrorism, um, as is the nature of, of the place that we are looking into. So please, if, the, if that is a topic that is um, potentially upsetting, upsetting or... for you, please, you know, stop listening, tune out. And um, join us next week when we cover something that maybe isn't so heavy, but it's a topic that we've been really keen to cover. And actually, is it's minus all the tragedy is a really interesting yeah, place. Yeah. So, without further ado, <laughs> welcome to the London Underground. Please mind the step, and over to Sergeant mind Major. The gap. Mind the, the gap. gap. Pulling into London, right? Okay, so um, the tubes in London, the underground, or obviously officially it's called the underground, unofficially everybody calls it the tube. Uh, there is some suggestion that that's because when they first started actually building them completely underground, it was a new type of tunneling and it was essentially a large metal tube. So that's apparently where it came from because oh, okay. the, the trains went down a mm. tube. Uh, probably an urban myth, but there you go. So uh, when we started looking at the beginning of the time for this, Victorian London was really, really increasing in population. Uh, of when Victoria was crowned in 1837, the population was around 1.7 million. And the population of London grew from 1 million in 1800 to 6 million by 1900. So that's a massive, Lord. massive increase. Now, so just to interject so quickly, what is yeah. the reason for that? No birth control. Uh, no, it's not no birth control. I mean, well, yes, they, there was well, no they birth didn't have it, let's be honest. <laughs> or no, nothing that anyone wanted actually you know wanted what? to do. Uh, there are lots of reasons why the population of London suddenly increased. In fact, the population across the UK as a whole increased. Uh, there are lots of reasons for that. There were better farming methods, so people could eat better, so people didn't die certain better advances in medicine. There are lots and lots of different reasons why. However, once the railways started coming, people were no longer stuck living in their little rural village. Yeah. So you could get on a train and you could travel to somewhere. And I'm not saying people were commuting, but London London is often, and even today, I guess, in those days specifically, you almost think of it almost like a massive magnet. And it just drew people in from all the surrounding areas. The trains made it possible for you to be able to do that. Yeah. Um, and just, they moved yeah. in and then the rise of domestic service because you could suddenly get work in London and it just it, you know, a, it builds itself. So it's not necessarily that there were six million people born, but there was now six million people living there. Drawn, living. Going, exactly. Yeah. And of course, the more people that move there, the more people that are born there. It's a cumulative effect, isn't it? Yeah. 
So the advent of the main line railways during the 1840s and the 50s then brings even more people into the capital. Traffic congestion was reaching a crisis point and they really needed some radical solutions. So uh, cabs, you know, horse-drawn cab, they were introduced in 1823 and an omnibus in 1829. So in 1834, James Hansen invented what we now know as a Hansen cab. But this actually just contributed to the terrible traffic problems. Apparently it was so bad, if you were in a horse-drawn cab or an omnibus, it could take you an hour and a half to travel the five miles from Paddington to Bank. Well, it's like now. You imagine. Well, nothing changing. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, exactly. So by 1893, there were over 10,000 cabs operating in London alone. And that doesn't include all the personal ones. That's just the ones that you could hire down. So it just gives you an idea of the amount of horse-drawn traffic that there was on the roads and just how difficult it was to get around. In 1846, a Royal Commission decreed that there should be no new railways built anywhere between the city and the West End areas. So that just made it even worse. So the traffic grew. London became a nightmare. So what they did is they then decided to come up with this idea of building the underground. But they didn't do big tunnels the way we think they do now. It was, originally, it was known as a cut and cover. So they would dig a big trench and then lay the track onto that and then do literally do a roof over it and then soil over the top. There is a lot of suggestion that the reason the tube lines are so higgledy-piggledy and go through so many, you know, they're not straight lines. Mm -hmm. A lot of them have lots of bends and curves. And there is a theory that that is to avoid plague pits. As they were digging through, they'd find them. It's actually very little evidence to that at all. So again, well, not impossible by any means. It's not, it's not impossible, but it's, it's fairly an urban legend. There are no real records of these lines having to be diverted around plague pits. There are two mentions of it. So the fact is, is if it did happen, it was mentioned. What the reason that the tubes, tube lines run so much is that when they were building these lines, even to the point later on when they were actually able to build a tunnel, it was believed that any buildings above would become structurally unstable. Mm -hmm. So the yeah. companies who were building the lines were forced to buy all the properties above and demolish them. So, of course, that made it incredibly expensive. So the easiest thing to do was to follow the lines of the roads above because they didn't have buildings on them. And that's why the tube that lines are sense. so yeah. meandering because they're following the road above. Anyway, so um, we said about the cut and cover. So they basically, they just did a brick arch over this shallow trench. And sometimes they would then use iron girders as well as support. So the first underground railway was the Metropolitan Line, opened in January 1863, and it ran between Paddington and Farringdon. The technology then got safer and they were able to then start doing deeper and deeper tunnels. But it wasn't really until electric power and lifts came in the late 1880s that it really began to take off and lots more lines were built. And I should imagine there, there would have been a lot of deaths in the process of possibly building these tunnels way back then. Like a, a there was in most the, things. The vast majority of the tunnels were built by what we would refer to as navvies. navvies so they yeah. were Irish labourers and they would do it. And they were known as navvies because they used to build canals 
and they were the, the official terms they were navigators mm-hmm. so ah. they would navigate along canals so it got shortened to navvies so some of these original trains uh when you've got the deeper stations and you had lifts to get passengers up and down they were literally just two or three carriages they were very narrow and they had tiny little windows that were just below the roof because they thought that there was no need for the passengers to be able to see out. So they were essentially just tiny little boxes. Uh, guards, every time you went into a station, a guard at the end of the carriage called out the name of the station and they got out and opened and closed all the gates for the customers. So it's almost like a cattle car. They were known as um, sardine box railways. They became <laughs> regarded as like padded cells because they were just, you know, a tiny little box, dark box. I can't imagine it would have been a very pleasant place to be, especially as they had an awful lot of issues with the fumes uh, and and breathing and air quality. So it wasn't really till 1908, all the different companies all started to work together and the coherent network that we would recognise as being the underground started to come together. A lot of the stations that were built during the 1930s are really highly regarded for their architecture. They're really, uh, you know, good examples of their type. In 1926, they built a series of deep pits underneath all of the lines. And this was to aid water drainage. However, they now become known as suicide pits. That's not what they were built for, but that's what they've, they've served an additional purpose. So they were built to allow drainage so that the lines didn't flood. But they found that when people were jumping, that it actually halved the amount of deaths because they tended to fall, if they were lucky, into the pit instead and the train would go over the top of them. So by 1933, all of London's public transport came under public ownership and they could finally get round to integrating services for the first time. And that is when we got our first, what we now recognise as the tube map. And that was invented by a guy called Harry Beck. And the tube map itself, again, doesn't follow geographical lines. He based it on an electrical circuit board. And there were lots and lots of different ways of of coming out. But that one ended up sticking and became the most popular. And we still use it today. So there was a massive plan to upgrade and expand services um, that they started to look at in around 1935. But of course, along came the Second World War and all work was interrupted. Between September 1940 and May 1945, many of the tube station platforms were used as air raid, sh- air raid shelters. Mm. Some of them uh, actually had bunk beds, three or four high, installed in them, and you could be sleeping in a bunk while a, while a tube's going past. Some of them, it was just a case of, you know, grab grab whatever space you could find. So a lot of Londoners spent nights sleeping on the platforms, although I can't imagine there was a lot of sleep going on. I imagine they were very noisy and hot and smelly places, but got to be a better option than being upstairs and and potentially being bombed. So that's why they were used. Some of the stations were closed and were used to protect valuable items. So, for example, a lot of the really precious items in the British Museum were stored in closed underground stations because it was essentially underground and Mm. hopefully prevent them from bombing. In 1938, there were two accidents involving crashes between trains and they caused the death of six and injured 12 near Embankment Station. Both were attributed to wiring errors. On the 13th of October 1940, a German bomb fell directly on Bounds Green on the Piccadilly line and it killed 16 people. On the 14th of October, the next day, 
Another bomb fell on the road above Ballam Station. This caused the destruction of the water and sewage mains, which completely flooded the tunnels and killed 68 people. Oh, Jesus. Yeah, awful. And what Absolutely station was awful. that? Uh, that one was, that's Ballam Station. Okay. Uh, the station was then closed for the remain until at least the early 1940s. Um, the, the, the sewage and the water, they, they were both mains. They broke, they flooded everything and all the people that were in there. I think if I'm rightly saying it was four station staff and 64 members of the public who were, awful. who were sheltering. On the 11th of January 1941, the ticket station at Bank took a direct hit. That caused the roads to collapse down onto the tracks below, and that killed 56 people. God. On the 3rd of March, 1943, there was a air raid shelter. Essentially, there were some new air raid sirens that went off. So the, the sirens have gone off, and everybody has started. Around 1,500 people have started to make their way down to the tube station for protection. They were heading for Bethnal Green. The problem is that nearby there was some new anti-aircraft guns going off and it was a new type and it was a sound that people hadn't heard before. So they're all trotting off on their merry way down to the tube station at the sound of the air ride sirens and all of a sudden they hear this anti-aircraft guns go off. They panic not realising that this is ours and they assume it's enemy fire so it starts a crush so everybody starts to panic to get down to the tube station right at the bottom there's a lady who's holding the child and as she gets to the bottom she loses her footing as she does this understandably she puts her hand out and she grabs for the nearest thing to her which is an elderly gentleman and all three of them go down the problem is they then can't get back up because people are rushing down mm. these stairs as possible because they think that German bombs are hitting them above. So all these people at the top have absolutely no idea what's going down at the bottom. Essentially, it was a horrific rush. Everybody just all went down the stairs. 173 people died. Oh, now, we, we, we yeah. do cover, there is a ghost story and we do cover Bethnal Green right. Station. Well, I'm not surprised, yeah. yeah. So it was 173 deaths, 62 of them were children, <gasps> and this is now known as the worst civilian disaster of the Second World War, and it's the largest loss of life in a single incident on the London Underground Network. God. At the time, um, Winston Churchill wanted it to be kept secret. The decision was made that it needed to come under the under the War Act and that nobody was allowed to talk about it because they were worried that, A, people would then stop using the tubes mm -hmm. as a shelter. B, they did not want the Germans to hear about it under any circumstances because they worried that the Germans would then use that as, oh, that's a great tactic, yeah. let's actually do it. So it was kept secret for many years and um, people who had to help get the dead and dying out or actually try and treat the dead and dying at the hospital was sworn to secrecy and many never spoke about it until literally they were in their old age what what a horrifically traumatic experience so by 1943 um they'd made a suggestion that they need to be thinking about a new line 
but in actual fact, the Victoria Line didn't come on until 1968. On the 28th of February 1975, a southbound train on the Northern City Line failed to stop at Moorgate Terminus, and it crashed into the wall at the end of the table at the end of the tunnel, known as the Moorgate Tube Crash. This resulted in 43 deaths and 74 injuries, and this is the greatest loss of life during peacetime on the London Underground. There's lots of great little milestones in this, isn't there? There is. There is. So the Jubilee line didn't get added till 1979. Really? And, yeah, Jubilee was late. Wow. Wow. It was late. Yeah. And it later, and then it got extended in 1999. The tube didn't reach Heathrow Airport until 1977. And in October 1978, the first female tube driver, Hannah Dad, started work. Her sister was her guard. And between them, they were the underground's first all-female crew. Hey, mm -hmm. go on, girls. Yay! I thought I'd get that in there, yeah. one of the ladies. So, they're probably still the only ones, but no, I'm sure they aren't. <laughs> okay, so, uh, we're, we're coming up a, no little politics. Bit, uh, a, little bit, a little bit more into uh, modern day now. So, of course, a lot of us may well still remember this. I know I certainly do. It's the King's Crossfire. Yeah. 18th of November, 1987, a fire was started by what they suspect was either a discarded cigarette or a match and it had fallen underneath what was, at those times, wooden escalators. Underneath the escalator, there was just a build-up of dirt and dust and grease from the escalators and rubbish, and it just it was just a perfect storm. It literally just went up. Oh, I remember that. It's so bad. Yeah, yeah. 31 people died from the heat and the toxic fumes in that one. And that's, that, so we, we cover up... that as well. In, yeah, in... I've heard yeah. some stories. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That... It's a very, very famous. I just and remember of seeing... because of that, you know, I remember Sorry. seeing the TV footage and people running up for the tube stations yeah. and police and screen, just like that you do in the terrorism these days. It was it was it was yeah. horrific. And I'm pretty sure that was the the awful. incident that changed because um, they were all wooden escalators yeah. and they yeah. swapped. That was they what were. made them swap yeah. it all out. That's right. So they're now all metal, and of yeah. course, all smoking is now strictly banned on the underground. Yeah. The thing is, is actually at the time you weren't supposed to smoke either, but it wasn't very. It clearly wasn't enforced. That soon stopped after that one. Yeah. So then, of course, we're coming up to one of the most recent incidences, which many people will know. And again, just to say, thanks to uh, Freddie's little trigger warning at the beginning, it is actually the 16th anniversary today of the terrorist attacks, often known as 7-7 in London on the tubes. So a group of men all met up. Three of them came from, they believe, from Leeds, and then they met up with one from Luton. And they all got themselves backpacks full of explosives and they got on a train to London's King's Cross. About 8.30 in the morning, they arrived at King's Cross and they split up, all going on to different directions. They went to east and westbound trains on the Circle Line and then they went on a southbound train on the Piccadilly Line. So 20 minutes later, simultaneous explosions struck trains at Russell Square which killed 26 and injured more than 340. Aldgate, which killed seven and injured more than 170. And Edgeware Road, which killed six and injured more than 160. The fourth bomber then exited the underground station, got himself on a bus yeah. on the way to Hackney, yeah. where he detonated his device. 
He killed 13 and injured more than 100. God, again, I remember that. And, you know, I was, yeah. I was quite young at the time, and I and I, there's, I remember that, and I'll always forget, you know, the image of the woman um, who's been treated yeah. with the burns on her face and is running that. Horrific. Really I just horrific. remember from that moment on thinking, nobody's going to go on tubes. You know, it took, I think it took a long time. It took a long, long to come time. Back. It was terrifying. It did, it did, absolutely. So, obviously, while we're into that, I mean... You know, the tubes for a lot of us, it's uh, either a, a great place to enjoy because it means you're going somewhere exciting and it's a day out and you're, you're doing something. For many people, for commuters, it's just one way to get from A to B. It's a way of life. Um, yeah. it's, it's a massive part of people's lives. Um, I managed to find some statistics on deaths and suicides across the network. Because we've all we've all heard the urban stories. We've all heard of, of examples of people and if you've ever been on the tubes, you know, you'll, there'll be delays. So it was interesting to actually see some specifics. The information is a little old, but it's still quite, you know, it's still worth listening to. So between the year 2000 and the year 2010, there was 644 recorded suicide <gasps> attempts. Attempts. Oh, that attempts. does not mean I was gonna... extended. It was but attempts. But still, even so... It's a lot. Well, they're jumpers. It is so six it's jumpers, effectively. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. A, a attempted suicides. Between 2002 and 2012, there were 274 deaths. Now, that excludes acts of terrorism. The vast majority of those are people who were attempting suicide. The London Underground do not to all transport do not issue numbers of suicides at particular stations they feel and quite rightly so that they wouldn't want to advertise mm -hmm. which ones are for want of a better word the most popular yeah mm. right so they yeah absolutely absolutely so i mean i can tell you for example um, I think one of the one of the, it's more about the lines than anything. But then one of the busiest lines um, for for numbers over that ten year period would be Central Line. Yeah. Uh, and Circle and Hammersmith. So it doesn't specify which particular which stations, ones, but, but lines it, and yeah. yeah, which stations it does. I mean, on average, within that ten year period of two thousand two to two thousand and twelve. I think the quietest year was 21 in a year and the most, the busiest year was 36 in a year. So across the entire network, it's still quite a lot, but maybe it doesn't sound quite as bad, but it does show you that if you've got, say, around 270 successful, there are 640, 650 who attempt, that's quite a low success rate. Well... It's not low enough. And also, we're yeah. talking yeah. about just the London tubes, not British Rail as a whole. We're and, talking and, about and as well, tubes. You know, tubes. And yeah. I think as well, yeah. in, in that, you have to remember that those who have attempted are not successful. There's, it doesn't then go on to mean that, you know, they go on to live full lives. These people then go on and potentially it's, are in a vegetative it's state. And, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and arms and limbs missing. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. It's an absolute snapshot of their day. Yes, absolutely. Um, so, and then, and I think, London Underground have certainly they've they've worked they and continue to work in a lot of prevention. Yes, they staff are very well trained to. Yeah, spot and I would imagine signs. emergency yeah. services they, and they, they, have, they know how to deal with it. But they have their own um, emergency response yeah, team. Yeah, that's what I meant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Yeah, absolutely. And certainly even things like the design of the station, things get changed all the time and able to, yeah. to try and prevent it. And I think as well, people are a lot more vigilant. And I know Londoners are notoriously ignorant and uh, rude. But I what think... do you mean ignorant? You can't say Londoners are ignorant. I'm a no, Londoner. No, but people on the, the ch- people. Well, I'm a, I'm a Londoner, but people on the They're tube. People. Miserable. Yeah, yeah. Miserable as sin. Because who wants to be They've on the tube? No, not much social but places I, in the but, tube. But yeah, I yeah. think there is much. People are more aware of the issue and are more willing to step in and intervene in situations. I think you know personally, if I if I was on a tube platform and I saw somebody, I would. Yeah, but how would you know they're going to jump until it's too late? You wouldn't know, would you? No, but it's not listen, like they wear a sign. I'm just about to. <laughs> Hello. No, but no, but, but listen. You know, there's. I think that people are much more um, aware of people's circumstances and people's mental states as opposed to 20 years ago, and are more aware of mental health, and so are maybe a little bit more on edge and more willing to intervene. I would say that if you had a man on a bridge, who was just about to take off his coat and jump in but i think it's harder on the tube station because they stand at the end and they go quickly just as a tube right so i'm not sure if that would be spotted but anyway you know who knows possibly so that that's just a, a little bit onto the figures just so we can the thing is as well you have to bear in mind is the sheer volume of people that go through it oh mm. millions i mean i i think so for example there are 11 lines they cover over 400 kilometers 270 stations and nearly 5 million passenger passenger journeys a day. At some points at peak times, there are more than 543 trains at once and some of them are going up to 40 miles an hour. If you took 5 million other types of human interactions, you would expect to see a certain amount of other events happening in that time anyway it doesn't yeah you know but i'm saying if you if you looked at five million car journeys how many of those would end in death mm. Mm. It, i think it's the sheer I think, volume yeah, it's just, have to so i i saw a, a, a statistic online and that the if you added in total the the mileage per of every journey on the tube each year is the equivalent of traveling halfway to the sun Really, yeah. yeah, that's crazy. And when you think yes, of it like it's that, phenomenal, it's, it's, it's huge, service. huge figures. Yeah. And it is an amazing service. And they actually, it is the backbone to our capital city, yes, isn't it? Of course. Without the tube, I do not know how London would run. No, neither do I. Well, you'd never get anywhere. You'd never get anywhere. Well, it'd take three days to get somewhere. <laughs> well, yeah. well, it'd take you 90 minutes to get from Paddington, wouldn't it? Oh, God, it'd be even worse <laughs> now. Goodness. But um, yeah, it's it's an it's an amazing place and and it's very very interesting. And I think you know some certainly some of the older stations when you're there, you can really feel the history. God, yeah, you can. As, as you go around and you and see it in the walls and the architecture. You they're very feel atmospheric, um, especially yes. at night. If it, when they're quieter, maybe not so much in rush hour because there's lots of people, yeah. there's lots of bodies. But you're right at night. It, at yeah. night, yeah, especially if you've had a drink. And you wander down to the station. There's about three people on the platform, and you go. You got to wait five minutes for the next one. You think. Whoa. Every time I'm on the tube, I, I'm always aware. I, for some reason, I think I stand right very back because I don't want to ever be pushed. And you just know that it could take that one loon, and I'd be the bloody person that that one chance in a million that get bloody pushed under. But yeah, it's something I'm really aware of because it's such a dangerous place to be. It, potentially. 
So I always stand with my back to the wall, leg it on the tube, and then pray to God nothing happens while I'm on it. I think it's uh, a rite of passage for every Englishman to travel on the tube someday. <laughs> There's nothing quite like the smell of the London underground. Yeah, no, that's yeah. right. The smell, actually, you're right. It is our London city, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, it's, the smell it's, of the tube. It's the warmth and the engines and the bodies and the... The, the hot air that comes through yeah, the tunnel. The, the, there is tunnel, nothing yeah. like it. I hate the tube, but I love it. Yeah, I'm yeah. the same. I and hate the it, sound of the train coming yeah. down the track. Yeah, yeah. And you can't you can't see it for ages, but you can stand you, there. You know and it's you coming. Can, you can hear that like, along the line. Yeah. Because as, as every, everyone yeah. gets into position, don't they, ready to ram yeah. themselves yeah. in. That's uh, <laughs> But yes, no. Thank you so much. Yeah, fascinating. Really, really, really good stuff. Really good stuff, as always. Thank you, Sergeant Major. Sergeant Major, we're doing so, a salute we're here saluting, for those who can't see. Yeah. <laughs> um, over and out. Dib, dib, dub, dub. Have fun. We'll listen. We try. <laughs> we love it. We're we very trying. Yes, we I am like. very trying, correct. <laughs> um, right, okay. Off you go then. See thank you, later. you. Bye, Sergeant. Bye. And that was that. So that was some seriously interesting history there. I, I didn't realise there had been that many kind of wartime deaths and deaths pertaining to those war years in the tubes that um you know, like she said about the flood and the but you know, it's, God, the, crush the, the, the tube is so central to every Londoner's life. God yeah. You know, it I'm surprised, actually, yeah, with the amount of deaths and stuff, but it doesn't surprise me at the same time. Mm. Um, they're massively tragic places. Uh, there's no real good that comes from them. <laughs> from them. Um, but I am going to speak to you a little bit now, so we're going to get down to the nitty-gritty. So, again, guys, you know, just a, a, an extra trigger warning. So we have spoken to um, a relative of Vanessa's who worked... Uh, for the London Underground, worked in the kind of depot and maintenance, but has lots of stories for us. All, all of his life, from a young yeah. boy to a retirement age, yeah, all so, of his life. So some of the, these are very raw and very honest stories, but this is, again, I want you to understand and realise the reality of some of the real tragedy that has happened in these places, so that when we go on to discuss maybe some of the, you know, the paranormal activity that we experience, you really get a feel for it. I mean, I'm, you know, it's it's almost like preaching to the converted for, you know, Londoners and, you know, for, for most of England in general, because we know and we understand what goes on in a tube. Maybe not to the extent, but, you know, for maybe some of our overseas listeners who don't understand, I yeah, think this is really, yeah. really important. Um, I, I think once you can imagine and feel the energy and after the stories you're going to say, yeah. then it will make sense to why there are so many paranormal... I mean, we really... We could talk about this. Freddie was telling me before we started, listen, this could be, we've got hours and hours to talk about. But um, so we're going to give you what, you know, yeah. limited amount of what we know. So anyway, let me get down to it. So we, I spoke on the phone yesterday to one of your relatives who has worked for the London Underground for ye decades. And he gave me a kind of um, a real brief. I can imagine it. I could, me and him could have probably spoke for hours and he could have given me lots of stories. But this is a real brief overview mm. of maybe the seedier, darker side of, mm. of the London Underground. So um, 
he worked for the on the uh, in the depot maintaining the trains on the central line now as sergeant major mentioned the central line is one of the most more notorious lines for jumpers which is what um they are, uh, are referred to um in amongst that community and there yeah, are, that's what they call them, jumpers. Jump, that's, jumpers, that's or, jumpers or, or, or one, one under. under. And I know it's a bit insensitive, but, you know, when when it becomes part of your day-to-day -day life... Yeah, my uncle said, he said, well, one under, you, one you, under on so-and-so line, one under. You, you desensitize, yeah, don't you? Yeah, that's how they would talk um, about it. There are two stations on the central line. I'm not going to tell you what they are, because, again, for the reasons that we don't want to kind of glorify this, but there are two reasons... Um, and he explained it to us is one has a curve on the approach and so the driver can't see and have time to stop or have time to stop um so that is a, is a notorious station and there is another one where there's um, a quite a long distance and it goes through what they refer to as a pipe and they reach kind of their top speed so as they are approaching the station is they're going so fast it's very hard for them to stop and again, that's, you know, a, a station that is is notorious for that. I did ask, I said, you know, is are there um, particular times that are, you know, you see more than normal? And he did say, you know, around Christmas time. But I think that is, you know, across the board in terms of, you know, suicides. And, uh, yeah. it, you know, it, it's, it's a real difficult time for a lot of people. Um, a time that is meant to be, you know, joyous for everyone isn't really. Even pe even people, people that yeah. have family and you know people to go to, it's not an enjoyable time. So around Christmas is a time that we see lots and lots of these kind of really tragic things happening. Um, I did ask if there was any stories in particular that stuck out to him, um, and then he went on to explain that you know the tube as as, as the tra as the tubes are built, the trains they're built in a very specific way so the front of the trains are built with bulletproof glass and that's for various reasons it's to protect to the driver and and things like that and because quite often people throw things at the tubes and just and ultimate safety it's, it's it? ultimate safety and he also mentions that the doors to enter into the carriages to the where the driver is they're highly secured they're you know they're solid metal and that's to, again that's to stop people Steel, from yeah. um, gaining access to that but he said that there was um, at one time there was a teenage girl who very tragically threw herself in in front of um, one of the tubes, and the sheer impact of of the collision, she went through the bulletproof bulletproof glass and into the door, and the impact of that also dented this I was, I was... this door, and they had to rebuild this metal and quite solid metal train from the front because it obliterated the I train. Th I was thinking about this last night. That has got to be some... I mean, you're talking about bulletproof glass and, and steel, and that has got to be some type of force. I don't know if, if a human body... I'd have to see that tested. Maybe... I mean, I don't want to get all paranormal, but... But that's a real possibility for me, strange, I feel. The, the amount of energy... Or I, I don't know, but t so you're not talking about a six foot five grown adult man, you know, you talk, but anyway. A teenage girl, yeah. it happens. Um, so he, he went on to describe a little bit more as well that, um, and I did know this, but people that are drivers on London Underground, if they have 
um, you know, for want of quote unquote one, one under, under. Mm. they are offered um, compassionate leave, and you know they can take as much time within and reason counselling and counselling and and, and, and and all things like that. And that if you have three in the course of your career, you are then offered a desk job, which I think rightly so. I think maybe even after one, it's uh, yeah, it's not good. Um, again, you know, lots of little anecdotes from him, but there was one time that they had um, a, a jumper. And they have a, the underground has an emergency response unit that come and they retrieve the body, retrieve the parts, clean within reason as much as they can. Um, but the the train that it happened to had come in, and they went to do the maintenance. And he went under to check underneath the train, and a finger fell onto yeah. the ground. Again, you know, <laughs> horrific. It's just horrific. I mean, I was... and that's kind of day to day. Yeah. It's not a shock. It's like a shock, is it? He, he said, didn't he? Because <clears throat> the bodies are spread over such a long stretch of track that um, they get all mixed up underneath the train. And like you say, there could be a finger. There's lots of fleshy parts. And he said, didn't he? You know, when the train comes in from a one under, it smells of pork. And he yeah, said that, didn't he, he said, you never forget the smell. He said, it's like burning pork fat. Yeah, is... because the heat of uh, you know of the of the tracks and the and friction and uh, the electrocution Whoa, just makes me. I mean, uh, I remember as a child, he said, "This is uh, this is not me to uh, offending anyone. It's just you know what is referred to, um, you know, by people who who work in the tubes." He said, um, "There's three types they call. There's the body bags who are jumped and are dead instantly. There's the screamers." who have got arms or legs uh, chopped off, but are still alive. And he said, there's the yogurts. And he said, the yogurts, they were just, they, they, they were both. And he them. said, so one under, yogurt, scream, or a body bag. I mean, he, and he said that with absolute, you know, real respect. He said, it, it, it's just the, the type of, you know, what they when you when you When you work in that environment, you do. Oh, yeah, he you, works in like 40, 50 yeah, odd years. It, you, you kind of are more attuned. You're right, you do get desensitised to it because, to these of course, kind you of hear things. about it so much. Um, you know, even in my line of work, you know, when, you know, I work with some horrific kind of issues and I kind of, you kind of switch off over you do, time. You it's and, your job, you have to. And you, you, you separate that. Like doctors and nurses, if they had a breakdown every time they had a death, they'd never go back the they'd next day. They'd never go back. You do desensitise, yeah. Um, so, again... Um, more stories of kind of deaths and stuff on the tube. He said it was didn't happen to him, but two colleagues that worked mm. in the station, um, that the train had come in to its last stage, last stop, and these guys got on to check the train, and there was an old boy sat there, and they went, "You're right, mate. You know, time to get off," and he was dead. Yeah, and he he'd just been riding so around on the tube. Natural death. Natural death. And but you quite often see people just fall asleep on the tube. You know, it's you know he might have had one too many. Yeah, and as a little kip, you you, you wouldn't think you no. wouldn't think to go. Oh my goodness, he you yeah, know he's you dead. No. Yeah. Um. But again, so you had that. I did say, do you got have do you got have you got any ghost stories for uh -huh. me? And he said, listen, I worked in the depot. I'm away from the kind of stations and things like that yeah. where the activity kind of goes on. Um, he does. He's a believer, though. He he understands there is paranormal activity. Yeah. So he's he's not a skeptic by any means. He but but he um also likes facts as well. Type type man, you know. Uh, but he he did say that when a train come in, that you would know 
he said, because the, you, you were just hit with an overwhelming feeling of sadness. Yeah, and the energy. Actually, yeah, and, it, and that come with the train. And, you know, the, all the lads kind of respected that and would... And, and kind of... Uh, so are you saying that they kind of understood it and it's like, oh, something's up with it, you know? So they kind of got that. They were collectively, they... they... Yeah. Yeah. So, um, as well, he, he did go on to mention something that I don't know has been massively publicised in the media, but there was a serial killer on the tubes and what he would do is he would he'd wait on the platform and he would push people into oncoming trains. And by the way, this is a modern day. This We're not talking about in the Victorian days here. Yeah, so... The only reason this fella got caught, it was because it, it was as they started introducing CCTV, CCTV onto the platforms. And better quality. Yeah, and better and quality. And, you know, th there was someone monitoring and controlling. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, he was arrested. He was tried. He was convicted. Now, this this fella has been put away permanently because he is a massive massive huge risk to the public but no one has any clue as to the number of victims uh, that he he has and, and and what he said as well which was so sad is and he said the worst thing is all those people got the phone calls because of course for years and years they thought they were jumpers why has he committed suicide why has she committed suicide and of course none of them ever that, did they were murdered and no one will ever know no, no one will ever know that because when when you do something like that, it's so quick and so final. People don't kind of leave notes or anything like that behind. So I can imagine there are a lot of families out there still really grieving and not understanding why their mm. loved one did that. Yeah, but they didn't. But he said, because I said to him, how is it done? He said, literally a hard, a quick, short, short shove. He said he didn't make a drama over it. It was very calculated. He knew the right position to push in. To balance it goes straight over. He picked his victim, didn't matter who it was, and just that shove was enough. I mean, what an evil I, 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 you know, I think, you know, there's some wicked, wicked people in this world, but that takes an, an extra layer of evil because, and I don't know if this ever crossed his, crossed his mind, but those, those families, to have, have a family member commit suicide it leaves a real gaping hole in a family of and, and of what could what, what could what, I, yeah. what could I and he's done that too we don't know it could be 50 families it could be four families it could be one family it could have been the one time well, it was more than one though, it was, was yeah it, it was, was caught, more than but one I mean, but it could have been 400 you know you just do not know and, and how many years he'd been doing it he could have been doing it since a teenager you just don't know before there was even cctv you know there. and i think that is just a real real short snippet of just one man's kind of experiences and stories mm. of of the underground and you know he was a very interesting man and he had lots more to to offer uh, but obviously we have got so much to jam into into this episode so i'm going to start now and i'm going to start giving you some some paranormal some ghost stories right so what i'm going to do is i'm going to go station by station okay in no particular order some of the stories are that I, I've chose to kind of hone into a little bit more because I thought they was particularly interesting. Mm. Others are quite short. So we are going to start with a station I know fondly because I've 
got the the, the first train home there many occasions. Yeah. I've fallen asleep on a bench Large there. Train home. I've been sick in a McDonald's bag there. It's oh, Liverpool it's Street. Yay. Yay. Which is our main one to Clacton. It is. Sea. So when we get on um, a train from our hometown Clacton, it goes straight through. Uh, to London, so it stops at Stratford, then Liverpool Street. But we always yeah. get off at Liverpool Street because it's kind of a bit of a hub. You can get yeah. onto every line, I yeah. believe, from Liverpool Street. So there's a really, really, really famous story uh, from from Liverpool Street, and I've watched so many documentaries about this and listened to loads and loads of podcasts and read loads of articles, and they all mention this. So there is a spirit in Liverpool Street of a gentleman mm. in overalls, right. white overalls, so, you know, um, a tradie of some description. Mm -hmm. I'd say probably a painter and decorator. And there's a really famous story. So they are, it's late at night, and they are watching on the cameras, and they see a gentleman in, in white overalls on the platform. He, someone else goes down and mm. checks. There's nobody there. Yeah. But the whole time that there's somebody down on the platform, there's still somebody watching the camera. Cameras, of course. And the yeah. whole time he's watching that camera, he can see the bloke down there and this bloke in the overalls standing right next, next to, to him, him, chatting away. <laughs> but this fella has no clue. Yeah. Can't see it, and he's just like, well, oh, well, there's nobody here. Was he radioed at any point to say, um, yes. hello, right? And, and, and he's going, well, there's nobody there. Anyway. And what the fella's saying, well, there is. I can see him on the screen. Yeah. Or a conversation similar. He he, he heads back to, he. I think he gets a bit spooked. He heads back to the the, the office. Mm. And they're like, oh, goodness, goodness, goodness. But they carry on looking. But was it recorded? Could he re? Did they have those footage to rewind it and say? Well, this was in two thousand. Oh, so possibly not then. Yeah, twenty. You know, yeah, I, so it, it was. Not. It was there, but I, I, you know, does the underground provide their workers with the, you know, the facilities to be able to rewind live footage? I doubt it. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. because for all kinds of reasons, yeah. they, they might tamper or whatever. Anyway, and they carry on looking at the CCTV, and they can still see this man down there. He runs wow. back out and then can't find anybody. All they find on the platform is yeah. a pair of white overalls. No. No. Oh, my God. That's fascinating. So that's strange but they true. They found the white they, overalls. And they found them. I couldn't tell you what happened with the overalls. I can't tell you what happened to the footage. But it's, it's, it's quite a famous figure. Mm. From Liverpool Street, there are a couple of other other kind of paranormal sightings there, but that is that is the most famous one. And also, um, now Charlotte is um, my friend, and she went to the London Underground. Yeah. Oh, you've told me about her. This. Um... And she was followed. So we get off at platform four, maybe. And not me, but that's like if you get the train from Clapton. Yeah. And she got off the train and it was like the last train in yeah. because she was going for a work thing or whatever. So she was the only person that got off the train. Yeah. And she was followed up the, well, she was she could hear, 
footsteps Perceps. behind her and she kept looking and but there's God, no one on creepy. on the platform. There's no one on the platform. And you can see right down these platforms. I mean you can see, can't you? Oh god. There's the odd billboard post, but not enough that you you haven't got clear vision. So, you know, there's there there is there's lots of activity there. And I've had a friend that's experienced it at yeah. Liverpool Street. So mm. that's Liverpool Street. It's a huge station. But I don't know if it has the creepy factor because it's a bit of a hub. It's so busy all the time. There's lots of shops. There's lots yeah, but of people. Hold on a sec. But you're talking about Liverpool Station, as in, like you say, the shops and McDonald's. Or, but if you get into those, if you spin off down, down the stairs into all of those tube stations, that is going to be a lot of activity. Yeah, it does get quiet. It is supposedly built on top of a plague pit. Yeah. Although Sergeant Major did say to us, that there's no real kind of... But do you know what I think about history? And I always say this to her. The fact that it wasn't written down doesn't mean to say it didn't it happen. It didn't happen. Correct. And I always say that. She will not suffer or have anything that's not written down. I said, but not everyone wrote everything. I mean, Jesus, nothing was written down on the cage. But we know it existed and we know what happens. But that, you know, so I always think historians do a fantastic job and, um, and researching what, what is the written word but listen, not everything was written down. No. So, I'll move on now very quickly to my next station. Now, this is my best story. Oh, God, I go love on. this. Go it's You're amazing. excited. Is it a really happy one? Because you've no, got it's... a big smile on your face. I, this you're is... clapping your hands literally. No, no, it's not. Well, it's not a happy one. But it's really, it's a cool story. Right, okay. So, we're at Holborn. Right. Now, next to Holborn used to be another station. And it was called British Museum. And it is the station you'd get off to get to the British, British Museum. Museum. Now, that closed um, in the 1930s at some point. But I'm going to start off a little bit forward and I'm going to go back. So two women are said to have gone missing whilst they were at Holborn Station in 1935. Right. Now... Let's go back a little bit. So there's these two women that have gone missing. Fact. Mm -hmm. There's newspaper articles. So the British Museum station closed in 1930s. But before then, there were reports of the ghost of the Egyptian princess Amun-Ra haunting the underground station. What? Well, look, look. Look, sorry. Let me tell no, you. I'm let, not buying this. Let me tell you. It gets good. Amon Ra. Right. Oh, I can't. I can't oh, yeah, she's going to. Right. I'll tell you where I'll haunt. I'll go, I'll go tube station in London. No. Habits. No. Go wait on. until I tell you. Go on then. Go on then. So. Regale me with before, this. Be, before story. it closed in the 30s, there were constantly reports of the princess meddling and doing things Ooh. to scare everybody. Yeah. So. There was, from the station, the British Museum station, there was a secret tunnel that connected to the, the Egyptian room in the British Museum um, through a series of kind of tunnels and stuff. So, there was... You've got my attention a bit more now. There was a... I'm going to... My storytelling this is way off. <laughs> My story says this on, is way off. Right, so listen, I'll tell you what has been experienced down there, and then yeah. I'll tell you why. Because this is that's going to be the easiest thing to say. So there is a secret tunnel 
that connects the uh, abandoned, now abandoned British Museum train station to the British Museum into the Egyptian room. Now, there have been reports of um, the figure of what they believe to be an ancient Egyptian woman wearing a headdress, loincloth, coconut bra. Now, who's... Um, not coconut I bra. Add, I didn't have a bloody <laughs> coconut bra. I added um, not. Yeah, add, don't add that. Because he don't add, don't add details like that. Oh, because I'm visualising that. Then you said coconut bra. Right, listen. Um, who is who is who who are is seeing this woman? Uh, passers by, passengers, staff. passengers, staff, and workers at the the British Museum. Okay. Now, so of, there is this figure of a woman with the the headdress, the loincloth, no coconut bra. And she would be seen full figure, but she would shriek and the scream and stuff would echo all through the station, down the tunnels and like really terrified people. That would make sense. yeah. Really, really like terrified that. people. So they refer to her as they believe her to be Amun-Ra, but that name is actually an Egyptian god. Hmm. Now, they this woman is meant to be a servant to this Egyptian god. She in her in her life she was she served So this... she was possibly a mummy was she in the yes. in the museum? Yeah. yeah, I'm getting to it. I'm getting to it. Oh right, okay. Um so she, that, that's why they initially thought she was Amun-Ra, but Amun-Ra is the goddess. But and she was But just she a, appeared she, as with the regalia with, of... with all the weird and yeah. wonderfulness. And it, the the mummy is said to reside in the British Museum. So they've said there is a mummy then of something connected to Amon Ra. Yeah, and so there was a, a newspaper article. Um, I did publish it on Instagram as part of the uh, teasers as to as yeah. to um, what we was going to be covering, and it was coined as the unlucky mummy. Mm. Now you like a curse, don't you? Well, nah. not, not one on me personally, on but I'm, personally. I'm interested in the world of... But anyway, so, the, you know, the, the kind of, the general kind of story is, is that the, um, there was a, the, a mummy of a woman that was transported and resided in the British Museum, mm -hmm. but because the British Museum was connected via the tunnels mm -hmm. and, and everything else, that the spirit of this person haunted both locations because she was because she was taken from her final resting well, place. Well, we know that spirits can walk anywhere. We know that, so that's not out of the way. Um, and um, so she she was believed to have haunted that location in not in an act of revenge, but because she was ripped from her, her burial place, un, like disturbed, and so this was her... Well, I don't blame this her. Was her spirit come back as angry, yeah. Revenge I mean, of the mummy on the tube. It's Egyptian burial places. To be honest... When I watch these shows, and they all take these, um, what they call sarcophagus. Sarcophagus. Oh, I, I can never say the word. When they all take them, put the museums. I think leave them there. Okay, get it for research. Can research it, put it back. I think it's unfair to take any skeleton or any, uh, you know, well, listen, holy burial place you and shove them in a museum. You I wouldn't. Don't like you that wouldn't. Thing. You wouldn't dig up your great great granddad and no. put him in a museum because you'd just go, no, hang on a minute, no, that's it's not wrong, right. It's wrong. It is wrong. Yeah, and I don't know why. You shouldn't disturb people's resting places. They did that to the Egyptians. I don't like it. I get researching it, but put it back and let them, you know, let them rest in peace because you know 
that saying rest in peace, it, there's a reason for But it. unfortunately, you know, we're talking way back when that this, yeah, this has happened. Yeah. I think maybe they're a, a well, little bit... Well, they're still doing it now. Yeah, to be fair. documentaries every week. Yeah. So, a bit of bit of backstory. Why yeah. it's coined the unlucky mummy. Yeah, go. Woohoo! I love this. This is such a good story. So, it was excavated in Luxor in the 1880s, and the mummy is three and a half thousand years old. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was in a very, very beautifully decorated sarcophagus. Yeah. I hope I've said that right. And was originally purchased by an Englishman called Thomas Douglas Murray. And he brought that on a visit to Egypt late 1800s. Mm-hmm. He packed up all of his possessions that he'd obviously got from Egypt. I'm sure he got more than one thing and yeah, shipped absolutely. it all to England. Yeah. All sacred stuff. All the sacred stuff. And he shipped it all to England. And very, very soon after that, things started to happen. So uh, Thomas suffered a shooting accident and he had to have his arm amputated. Mm. Two of his servants who handled the mummy died. Yeah, yeah. And so... Quite classic mummy... um... Listen, it gets better. Go. So... Once the mummy had returned to, to England, a journalist borrowed the casket and soon after that, her mother died. Her engagement broke up and her dogs went mad. And once she'd returned the casket, everything went, it all, went it, normal, it all yeah. kind of re- returned to normal. Now, obviously, Murray is, I think, cottoning on to the fact that... Something's a bit... Something's yeah. awry. And so he's thinking, I need to get rid of this. So he gives it to his friend. Yeah. Well, no friend is that. And they also suffered a series of misfortunes, then died. Yeah. Very suddenly. Um, the friend that he gave it to was also keen to, 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 ditch, yeah, to, have, yeah. to, to ditch it and gave it to his sister. <laughs> yeah, you have it. And she yeah. had a very, very long string of bad luck. Um, but she, when she had ownership of it, she took the mummy to be photographed. And when they developed the pictures, not long after that, the photographer died. Because when he was developing the photos, in you know, like in the sarcophagus, it they have the face on yeah. on on the casket. In the in the photograph, that almost transformed into like the face of a human woman mm, mm, mm. um kind of i can oh, visualize that what you're saying. almost like almost before, like yeah. super in yeah, superimposed yeah. and the photographer said that uh the eyes were furious and that they had an expression of malevolence you know so and he died not long after yeah mm. now someone went on to purchase one of them photos and when he took it back to his house, every single piece of glass in that house shattered, mm. which is very, very scary. So Murray heard about this through the grapevine and he said, listen, get rid. You don't want it. Take it away. Yeah. So the the woman that owned it, which was Murray's friend's sister, donated it to the uh, British Museum alongside some other Egyptian artefacts that yeah. she had in her possession. Now, that doesn't end there. So the person who delivered the mummy to the museum died. 
and people who photographed it or sketched it for the newspapers and stuff on mm. its arrival also died. Mm. Uh, there was one bloke who shot himself. Yeah. Terrifying. Now, the mummies at the museum, staff are there, they, they maintain and look after the exhibits. They reported on numerous occasions they heard someone inside the casket sobbing and hammering to get out. Oh, God. Well, listen, I'd have been out there like an absolute bloody shot. Um, so, <laughs> I just imagine it. <laughs> you running out there screaming. <laughs> it, 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 it never stopped. So in the end, what they did is they moved the, the casket and they put it in its own exhibit yeah, and yeah. gave it a more prestigious kind of mm, display mm. and it all died down, which I think is quite cool. She wanted to be in her glory because yeah. she obviously had money and splendour and stuff yeah. to be in that position. So she needed that again, I'm going to say. Um, now, it's again very famously documented that two British new newspapers offered a cash reward to anybody who would spend the night alone in the station overnight. Nobody went for it. Really? No, not a soul. Um, yeah. Now... This is where it gets really interesting. So there is a film called Bulldog Jack, and it's like a comedy, thrillery, kind of s kind of thing. It came out in the 30s, and the story is in the film that there's a secret passageway that leads from a tube station into the British Museum, and in there there's a Egyptian coffin, um, and the... It all goes a little bit wrong and a bit mm. right. Now, everyone thought that people were being hysterical after watching that film yeah. and just putting two two together. Yeah. But that film was released two years after the station had closed. So, so the incidents that happened is what influenced the film. The film, not the other so, way around. So there's your interesting fact of the day. Um, but it's on the night that that film premiered that the two women at Holborn Station vanished they was walking through the tunnels to get to the station um at the time they dis disappeared there was lots of screams moans um heard by lots of different passengers were their and... bodies ever found no but there were scratch marks found on the wall um but not a holborn at the british museum station yeah, wow. Very interesting. And it, apparently, I don't know how true it is, uh, I didn't find any testimonies of this online, but there you can still sometimes hear shrieks and wailing and all kinds of things yeah. in Holborn Station. That is believed to be the two women that disappeared on the night that the film premiered that was based on the events that had happened. Yeah, God. That's cool, isn't it? It is cool, yeah. It's, I um, like that. It's a bit out there, but I like it. Again, it's a good thinker. It's a good thinker. Next station, we're at King's Cross. Right. Another huge, huge station. Now, this, again, it stems from something that our Sergeant Major mentioned earlier, that on the 18th of November, 1987, there was a, a tragedy that struck there, that there was a fire on the escalator that caused, a, you know, an absolute fireball and an inferno that killed um, various people yeah, and injured yeah. lots of others. 
Now, obviously, we spoke to your uncle, and he's and again, you know, like I mentioned as well, that it, this this event was the turning point for real safety yeah. measures in the London Underground that we see today because they are meticulous now. Before that, you know, you could have gone to the pub in, on your lunch break, gone back and started working on the trains again. That wouldn't happen in a million years now. Yeah. You you got you're getting drug tested, alcohol like weed tested, hair test, strands, everything. everything yeah. They are to the point with everything. Yeah. Now, at this station. Um, this has been seen lots of times from about late 90s, I would say. Um, there's lots of eyewitness accounts online, so but they all kind of read the same. Now, there is a woman aged, about, you know, mid-20s, late-20s, dressed in 80s style. Yeah. Um, hair, makeup, the lot, you know, yeah. un- and the 80s are unmistakable. Yeah, exactly. You know um, And they see her running through the station, completely distressed, sobbing, you know, screeching for help, asking oh, for help. Oh, God, that's horrible. And people stop and say, what can I do? What can I do? But other commuters walk through her. God, that just... You see... <clears throat> That's why you need a good soul rescue, spirit rescue medium to, to get to her because this is what I hate about what, what we discuss and what we talk about. She's reliving, <coughs> hopefully, <coughs> excuse me, that's um, just that incident replaying itself, not her there. Constantly, constantly, constantly. Yeah, well, yeah. listen, I can, I, I, yeah, I live in hope that that is, you know, just that's, a replay that, of a horrific event. That's breaks my heart, stuff like that. I hear stuff like that. Um, but, yeah, so... And this has happened to more than one person throughout the years. Um, I think that the first incident was about 1998 that it was reported. Yeah. And it has happened since then. Um, my understanding from what I've read and what I've seen is that it's just that kind of one person that can really see them because everyone else kind of continues as normal. Yeah, not everyone can see. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, that... The, the, listen, the, the, the tube is a busy place and there's people coming and going and that you know this woman is stopping and going you know help me help me help me and people are going what can i do what's the matter what's the issue and someone just walks straight through her yeah yeah and you think well jesus christ so sad i hate that i hate stories like that now we move down the line to Bethnal Green. Right, okay. Another one that the Sergeant Major mentioned. Yeah. And again, this is, um, we, we're going back to another huge, huge loss of life. And again, was mentioned, it's the, it's the biggest loss of civilian life during World War Two. Oh and we're talking about the, the kind of stampede, the crushing, and majority of was was women and children that died oh, God, yeah, at Bethnal Green Station. Because a lot of the men would have been at war. Of course. Uh, now, there is no physical sightings at Bethnal Green. But the, what has been reported repeatedly is the very, very distinct and overwhelming sound of women and children crying and screaming. Oh, God. Now, on one documentary I watched, there was a kind of a, a fella talking who worked at Bethnal Green and very early 80s was working the night shift alone at the station. Mm. And so they have a, a um, like an office that they're in yeah. and they work from. So he had locked up the station 
there's no one else around because that's their job. They have to check that they haven't locked anybody in. No drunkards in a little corridor anywhere, you know, nobody lost or anything. So he's heading back to the office and he is doing his paperwork. And as he's sitting in his office, he can hear the kind of united sob of children crying. Oh, don't. I don't. I can't stand it. And he's he's sitting there. And I, at this point, I think it's quite a faint in the distance. And mm-hmm. he thinks, do you know what? I'm not even going to pay it any mind. I'm just going to crack on. And as he's, as he's getting on, it gets louder and louder and louder. And then joining the children, he you can then start hearing women screaming. Oh. And he, this goes on for around 10 or 15 minutes, mm. which actually I think is a really, really prolonged time, time yeah. Yeah. for something like that to happen. Yeah. Um, so he's obviously kind of like, well... <laughs> What's going on? A little bit scared, but concerned. Heads out into the main area, into the ticket hall, essentially. And there's not anybody around. There's nobody there, but the screams and crying are still going on. Um, And he said, you know, I was so frightened to go back to the office because of the noise that was going on. And he refuses now to go to Bedford Green at all. To this day, he refuses to work at that station, go through the station, anything. I mean, I think I always think this these stories and these, in my, my opinion, true accounts is that if there's any soul rescue mediums out there, go there, please, and see if there's anyone that needs to be passed over. Now, it could be you know, stone tape theory, residue energy, which we talk about a lot, and just the energy uh, replaying itself over time, but. If there is any children, I mean, I, I just hope that in a situation, a death situation like that, uh, one of the angels comes down and, and picks them all up um, on their point of death. But, listen, anyone can, that's got can, skills, can, go there I and can, try and I help. I can imagine, though, the sheer... The fear. Fear and, and, distress, and, and distress and emotions that went on in that time. That the screams are probably the sound yeah. of the screams are embedded, embedded. in the that, that energy sticks. And yeah, that and I'm hoping sticks. that that's uh, the case. But that's yeah. that has been experienced on more than one occasion. Because not I mean, by, but not by members of the public. They they've all kind of been staff members. It's all been after hours. Yeah, because you imagine there's nothing worse for a mother on this planet than than having their children harmed or upset or well, potentially dying. So then you have this to all happens in, and your own. This all happened in the middle of an air raid. So these mothers have hold of their children. They don't want to lose them. It's a scary time. So they're, they're under their arms. They're scooping you them. Take them with your life, your and, children. And, yeah. and they are, you know, to be crushed oh, to I death can't even imagine while, can't, can't while even running to, to escape another certain escape, death above yeah. ground. Just horrific. Just But that's horrific. where souls get trapped. That's where the energy is. is that's where you, you don't cross over. That's where you miss it. Because again, my understanding now, correct me on this if I'm wrong, is that you know, and I'm I've always been a very firm believer of this, is that the the soul when it passes needs a way to escape, whether that be a door, an open door, a window. Is there is that it's underground? No, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. No, God isn't gonna say, well, you can only come up to me. Uh, if if yeah. if you know, I'm not having it, you. Okay. Yeah, because if you're in a bedroom, there's no windows open. You're fucked. Well, it doesn't work like that. But obviously, souls can get sh- trapped and stuck because when the light comes, they don't go to it because they're panicking. This you know, and, and, and that's the problem. And there's lots of like Simon Ludgate said the other day. There's glitches in the system, as he put it. It's a glitch. 
Um, and so anyway, you know, when we do these stories, any medium, spiritual person who, who can sense and, you know, go down there if you feel saying, pass them over, please. You know, for God's sake, don't don't leave them there. So I now move on to my next train station. OK. We're in Covent Garden. Oh. I like Covent Garden. I love Covent Garden. You love everywhere in London. I do. Maybe <laughs> I am a city boy at heart. Yeah. Maybe I am. We are both Londoners. We are both Londoners, yeah. I'm an East Londoner. And I'm a West Londoner. East, East, East London. <laughs> um, in so... a West End town, I don't know. I'm not going to sing. The East End boys and West, West End girls. Oh, yeah. Listen, we're pet shop boys. So, anyway, we're, we're in Covent Garden this evening, folks. We're not really. We're in Clacton, but... Um, <laughs> we can... <laughs> pic picture this. The year is 1972. Everyone's wearing brown. Oh, Mm. An orange. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> no, so we're in 1972 now. <laughs> if they're in that kind of era, you know, there are lifts, there are escalators, but the lifts are, have to have someone that operates them. Yeah. So there is a, and it's normally that job was filled by kind of younger people, um, but there was a, there was a young man working the lift in Covent Garden. Now, after the last train had gone, and he, you know got everyone in the lift going, right, listen, we're, we're closing up now, everyone in the lift. He'd taken them up and done whatever. And, he, you know, he was under the impression that everybody had gone. Mm -hmm. And then he's kind of, you know, doing whatever. And then he sees a very tall man wearing a waistcoat, top hat, the lot. Quite, yeah. quite out of, out of space for the times. Absolutely, yeah. Stood in the ticket hall. Yeah. And he, you know, he said, oh, oh, I'm so sorry, mate. Listen, listen, you know, don't worry. I'll, I'll let you out. He's gone to get his keys, gone to go open up. And then he's turned around. Nobody's there. Yeah. He hasn't heard anybody run away because as well, the all the tube stations are all tiled. So if yes. you'd hear someone you walk could, away from you, yeah. you'd hear someone, especially if there's nobody else there. Um, but, you know, he's thought, oh, well, he must have, you know, gone down to the platform maybe or, or or whatever um you know trying to catch the last train so he's gone and searched everywhere now it's locked no way in no way out yeah he's nowhere can't find him anywhere at all so he kind of just you know not forgets about it but moves on and he he speaks about this to his colleagues and says you know look listen this is what happened and the colleague wax out this old photograph and went is that what he looked like and he went oh my god yeah no that's him that's him where'd you get that from and he said you know he is seen he's been seen here for years yeah. and he is it was it's a photo of um an actor and his name is william terrace and he has been seen on the london undergrounds since about the 1950s well that's the first kind of recorded or first yeah. mentioned yeah. that he's been there um and he was murdered in 1897 by um a fellow actor right he was stabbed multiple times um, and he, he he died in the arms of his lover who was a, an actress as well yeah. and famously turned around and a bit like arnie said i will be back and that's meant to be these famous last words. Um, but, mm. you know, 
it's been reported again. So four days later after that incident, mm. the um, same man saw him again. And he thought, no, they must be playing a trick on me or something like. Yeah, he's, he's thinking, you know, hold on a minute. Yeah, and yeah. so he went, he went to go speak to him and the fella just vanished, just yeah. disappeared. Um, but then again, a few days after that, another employee burst into the staff room screaming, saying, I've just seen him, I've just seen him, I've just seen a ghost. And he again has been spotted frequently. And he's, he's quite famously known for manifesting in the staff toilets of all places. So I wonder what that would have been in his day. Probably wouldn't have been the staff toilets. Do you know what I love about these type of ghost stories is it's normal tradies, like you say, normal people, normal fellas that probably wouldn't give you a bar of any stories. And I've spoken to so many over the years since a kid, just picking people's brains on, on ghosts. Yeah, and and so many men yeah. I speak to said, Ness, I'm telling you what, I would have told anyone you're mad as a box of frogs until it happened to me. And when these men tell you, you they know, also, you know, they saw that they because they hundred percent that in fact, by telling you is, is, um, doesn't big themselves up. You know, they, you know, they don't want to have to tell you, Oh, actually, I think I saw because, a ghost. because there is almost a shame and I'm really not sure the why. Alpha males. It's like that, that, that a lot of them don't believe in it, but sometimes when it happens to these men and I thought to so actually maybe we should have a, uh, a, a separate um, show on this, like people's personal experiences. But I spoke to so many and they said, I'm telling you now, I'm six foot, I've been a builder all my life, nothing scares me, and I'll tell you what, I was absolutely terrified and I was spoken to, you know, that's why I love these credible ghost sightings by normal people, normal people. who are just getting, yeah. you know, getting on with their day. Um, I'm conscious that time is getting on, so I'm going to try and flip through. Very quickly. Okay. So I'm now down to Farringdon. Right, okay. No Farringdon? Yes. I've been to Farringdon. Um, now, there is, again, it's not a, uh, a manifestation or a figure. It's, um, it's known as the screaming figure. Mm -hmm. And it is believed to be the ghost of a young girl, a young which is 13, called Anne Naylor. And she lived in in the area and was an apprentice to a hat maker, so a mother and a daughter. Um, and they used to beat her viciously and starve her. And one day they took it way too far, killed her. Mm. And they, they um, didn't know what to do with the body, so put it in the loft. Mm. And that started to smell, so they didn't really know what to do with it. So they tried to chop it up and burn it. Mm. And they thought, well, goodness, no, I can't do that because... Everyone will smell the rotting flesh, like yeah. burning flesh. So they decided to dump her in a drain. And that drain now sits centrally in the middle of what Farringdon Station would be now. Oh. So it was discovered once they'd built Farringdon Station because they had to excavate all the mm. what's going on. And she is meant to scream um, on on the platform and this has been heard by countless commuters yeah. loads of people have heard this shrieking not just a ah yeah. like blood curdling screeching um and that's farringdon so now i'm going to move on to another really good story so this one's a little bit longer but i really like this so we're now at bank bank tube station 
and bank is frequently known as um, the worst station on the London Underground. In all the passenger surveys, it's classed as the absolute worst pit of the earth. Um, I can't remember if I've been to bank, but... You know, I'm not going to disbelieve these people. So, Bank is situated in the epicentre of London's financial district. And it is one of the oldest and busiest stations on the underground. Uh, now, interestingly, uh, the ticket hall to Bank is just adjacent to St Mary Woolnuff's Church. Right. I believe that's how it's pronounced. Um, but in order to build the ticket hall, they had to um, dig into the crypt attached to this church... And they had to move between seven and 8,000 bodies. What? Horrific. Really? Yep. Um, and even one of the doorways leading down to the ticket hall would have been the crypt's entrance. Yeah. And that's still standing. That's still original. Um, in January 1941, they had a direct hit as well from a German bomb. Killed, you know, yeah, lots yeah. and lots and lots of people. Um, the station is, you know, there's various things that go on at this station. So the kind of the general consensus is, is that people that there, passengers, staff members, they all talk about how they just overcome with hopelessness and sadness. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all that energy. Also, as well, passengers and staff both comment on the random and unexplained putrid smell that wafts through the station oh. and the, the, they almost say, say it's a bit like rotting yeah, flesh like it, be, yeah um so you have that as well um staff who work late at night in in the station often report loud bangings coming from the lifts after they've closed um and doors slamming in 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 the ticket hall but there is a very, very, very famous um, ghost at Bank Station, and she is known as the Black Nun. Mm -hmm. Now, there is a story about the Black Nun, right. and I'm going to give it to you real quick. Okay. So, her name is Sarah Whitehead, and Sarah Whitehead is the sister to a man called Philip, and he was a clerk at the nearby Bank of England. He had a very fond... Um, penchant. penchant for the finer things in life but obviously he was just a clerk couldn't afford it yeah. so he big borrowed steeled and he got himself into a hell of a lot of debt like an ex-boss of ours that we know was like an ex-boss <laughs> <laughs> shout out to you if you're listening um, and he you know he had growing financial problems his sister obviously was swept up in that, loved the finer things in life. And, you know, he kept her in a lifestyle. And, but she was never really fully aware of, of, of what what was happening. Yeah. So, but he had to keep up appearances of what was going on. He tried investing in the stock market. That went wrong. He tried gambling. That, that went wrong. wrong. Yeah. And he just got worse and worse and worse and was more and more in debt. So he had a friend that said, listen, why don't you just forge a cheque at work? Let's cash it in. Mm -hmm. So he forged a cheque. For £87, which is about three grand, four grand in yeah. today's money. Um, and he was, but he was, he was, he was discovered and he was sent to Newgate Prison and awaited trial. 
in that time, he sent his sister away. He didn't want her to know anything about what was happening. Right, okay. So he sent her away to stay with friends and said, Look, listen, you know, you go do that. So she wasn't aware. He was sentenced to death and um, he was executed. Yeah, he was executed in 1812, age 36. I've referred to him as Philip, but in the old Bailey records, he's referred to as Paul. Okay. So we don't really know. Um, so obviously he didn't want to, he didn't want his sister knowing what was happening, but she returned after a while and she kept going into his place of work and saying, where, oh, is he? where is he? Where is he? And all of them knowing what is happening, going, oh, you know, you know, he's not, he's not in today. He's not in today, but everything's okay. Come back tomorrow, maybe. Come back tomorrow. Um, and they played her along, played her along, played her along, saying, oh, no, he's out on a trip. No, sorry, he's doing this for us. Yeah. No, sorry, he's busy today. Uh, but eventually, though, eventually <laughs> one of them just turned around just and said, said yeah. yeah, look, listen, he, he's been executed. So from that point, she started to dress in black and completely head to toe, vowed the lot. Um, but she wasn't able to process what had happened. But she continued to visit the bank and ask, where's my brother? Yeah. Where's my brother? Yeah. And them taking pity on her would say oh no he's not in today and she would continue to say well give my love to him when he returns you yeah, know so she's I'll, not I'll, getting, yeah, yeah, yeah i'll yeah. come back tomorrow i'll come back tomorrow um now they say that they treated her quite kindly in the bank they understood her position yeah. and you know they they fed her they gave her a drink they sat her down and you know entertained her to a point um but the, it got to a position where she was getting worse and worse and so in, she was becoming maybe quite aggressive when they say yeah. that he wasn't there and her kind of mental state mental, began yeah. to began to unravel and she died quite soon after mm -hmm. after that now she has been seen in the bank in and around the bank of england and in bank station because she's believed to have been buried not too far she's meant to be in the church right, nearby yeah. um and she approaches people in the street and says oh have you have you seen my brother today oh god but she's all dressed she's in black very she's not at rest um she's even approached a group of american tourists and this is the really and and said oh have you seen my brother and they went no sorry like i don't know what you're talking about my best American accent. Um, and, you know, they they lived with that for quite a while. And it weren't until they found, like, a forum. They said, oh, my God, I didn't God, even know said, anything yeah. about this. She, she approached us and asked us if we'd seen her brother and things like that. So that's... So sad. Um, that's quite an interesting um, thing. She has been seen um, by various kind of passengers, staff, including um, in... On CCTV, so it's about two o'clock in the morning, station's locked up, there's no members of the public inside, but there's a member of staff checking the CCTV yeah. at all times. And they noticed like a little old lady standing in one of the long corridors. Um, and it's close to like a bit of a sharp turn, which is known as a dog leg, which goes up to a staircase, mm, mm. If, you, if I say, you know what I mean. So he grabs a radio, he goes to investigate, and he claimed that he approached the lady, and as he did, she looked straight up at him, looked down again, turned, and just started walking. Um, so he started ch ch chasing after her to think, like, you know, what's what's going on? But as he approached the dog leg bit that would uh, yeah. turn to go up the stairs, she'd gone. And this is two o'clock in the morning, station's locked up, nobody there, dressed all in black. Um, you know, so really, really sad. scary. Brother, yeah. And again, you know, it's it's 
they've they checked all the cameras then they checked the camera to look at the dog leg down the stairs but there was nobody there um mm. quite mysterious so um i've got quite a few more stations to talk about but i'm going to wrap it up now very quickly and i think maybe we'll come back to this i want to talk to you very very quickly maybe two or three minutes okay about infrasound now in yes. all all of the uh documentaries podcasts everything that i listen to they speak about something called infrasound and it's really quite interesting so it is in a nutshell a sound that is a frequency lower than 20 kilohertz and it is a, the frequency is at the very bottom of the human range of hearing right. so we cannot process that sound but the body registers it yeah um the sound when we are exposed to it causes the body to have really strange reactions so at that lower end um things that could produce that are things like trains passing through tunnels the wind that comes with it, the vibration of the tracks, which is potentially why we have so many experiences on the tube. Now, when exposed to these sounds, uh, participants in experiments have felt chills, mm -hmm. anxiety, yeah. a sense of being watched, unexplained sadness. People have also reported having like slight hallucinations so in their peripheral vision seeing shadows in the yeah. corner of their I've, eyes i've seen controlled experiments yes yeah. yeah. and and kind of that feeling you know being watched and being yeah. really wary of their surroundings Paranoia, yeah um but and this is the bit i really really loved so they've they've kind of summarized to think you know there's a reason that the human body reacts in this way to these sounds why is that and that is because they believe that humans have evolved to be agitated and frightened by low sounds because it's useful in avoiding danger because then kind of sounds are produced when there is an avalanche or a storm yeah. or a, a disaster that comes yeah and so that the body is in tune like animals they say can hear on can a level sense it and, danger, and, yeah. and flee from yeah. that and they feel that humans have evolved to and, and we may be not as in tune with it as we used to be mm. and there you go and that's I'm going to wrap it up now really quickly, guys. We've gone say, way over time. Before we go, this is how dedicated we are to this podcast. Um, I think the match is ended now, but England were playing Denmark tonight. And although we should be um, watching... I don't know the and, score. No, no we don't know the score. We've been here for you guys instead. So we'll find out when we leave here. But it's just the dedication for us to this podcast. We've missed England. Miss me screaming and shouting and going like a loon. Because it so is coming know. home. I don't know the score, but it's coming we home. We can't say, we don't know. It is, it's coming home. Please God, please God. <laughs> well, let's see, we'll, we'll find out when we are. Uh, I'm not having it any on. other way. <laughs> but guys, listen, I had, there's so much more from this. And I think we will revisit this maybe a little bit more in depth and, and talk about some of the other stations. But hopefully you really enjoyed this episode because I really enjoyed researching it. And, and, I really and enjoyed if anyone's talking got any personal experiences again on Tube Stations, let us know. We'll include Have you, you worked on the episode. Tube? Does your yeah. husband work on the Tube? Tell us, let us know. Um, but I'm going to sign off now and, and leave you all be. Um, as always, follow us on our social medias. They're all in the description, episode description. You can email us with your thoughts, suggestions, comments, experiences, but we only have positive feedback. We don't, we don't like it if we, it's we bad. don't we, we don't, don't really like respond to negative feedback. We don't like it. Not that we've had any, 
but I won't be listening to it regardless. Um, all the email addresses are in the description <laughs> for us and the Sergeant Major. So if you have any historical questions, you're more than welcome to ask. But thank you as always. I'm really sorry that this maybe seems a little bit rushed, but I wanted to get so much into so little time. We love you. At the sacrifice of watching England and Denmark. Yeah, we've sacrificed that. <laughs> we love you. We care for you. We appreciate you. We're off. We're wonderful. I'll see you all soon. Be good, be safe, be honest. Have a blessed week. See you later. Goodbye.